Uh, we have spent time the last three weeks thinking about um, uh, the big picture design that God has for the family. And we were reminded in our first week that that family is one smaller part of the bigger picture of what God is about, that he is about redeeming people to himself and about transforming them into his image. And, and so God wants to use your family to accomplish that bigger picture. And uh, that means that he wants to do that in you. You know, a lot of what God does in having parents and kids is sanctify the parents <laughs> because of the, the ongoing realities that we deal with with kids. Some of that uh, you know, when they're young and, and we're changing diaper time after time after time after time and, and the Lord is teaching us patience and grace and, and, and as they get older and we see our sin reflected in them and so he's sanctifying us by letting us see things about ourselves in, in the mirror of our kids. And, uh, but he also wants to use us as an instrument to shape our kids. And so we began to look a couple weeks ago at, at the tools that God gives us to do that. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Father's do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we've been thinking about how we are to, to bring up, to nourish, to raise our kids. And we're to do that using two primary tools, the tool of discipline, of, of both corrective discipline, when our kids do things that are wrong, and, and also just formative training of them. And then the tool that we're gonna look at today of instruction. And so I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which will be kind of our, our base text for much of what we will think about today, although we'll flip over to some different, uh, different texts as well. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul was writing to uh, Timothy, who was a pastor, and he was encouraging him to stand firm for the truth in light of the, the challenges that were going on in his day and, and the things that would come, the difficult times which would come, which much of which describes our culture and day as well. And, and he was writing to him and he says this in verse 14. He says to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's our, our hope for our kids and we'll unpack some of that together that from childhood, from infancy, from the time they are very young, they will have learned the truth of scripture so that they continue in that. And, and so we wanna think today about our role of instructing our kids. And if, if we're going to instruct our kids the faithfully according to what Scripture calls us to, I want us to just think of a number of principles the Scripture lays out for us. The first is we have to embrace our responsibility for instructing our kids. Embrace your responsibility for instructing your kids. We've looked at a number of passages that remind us that the primary responsibility for spiritual instruction for our kids falls to us as parents. Doesn't mean that we are the only ones to be doing that, but we've, we've looked at verses like Ephesians 6, 4 that I read earlier, to fathers, to bring your kids up in instruction. Now, where is Ephesians 6, 4? Well, it's in a letter to the church at Ephesus that was being read in the church, and there's instruction in there to kids, so it's not that parents are the only people to be instructing their kids. They benefit from the overall ministry of the church as well. 
but fathers uniquely have that role and responsibility. We've looked at, at texts like Deuteronomy chapter 6, which uh, says these words which I'm commanding you shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. There's that primary role and responsibility that parents have. Or Psalm 78.5 says, He established a testimony and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. You know, the church can be a, a great blessing in that. And I, I think our our children's ministries can be a huge benefit to parents in reinforcing and, and teaching truth. But our job as parents is more than just bringing our kids to hear other people teach them the Bible. You know, we, we can do that and kind of have that mindset in a, a lot of different things, as we've talked about in past weeks, you know, where we are in a culture where there's lots of experts to teach our kids different things. You know, if, if I want my kid to learn how to play the piano, I can pay somebody who's better than me to teach them how to play the piano. And we can get them in, in sports teams where somebody else teaches them. And, and when it comes to spiritual truth, though, we have to embrace our responsibility. Not only that, we, we secondly have to remember our goal. If you look at at 2 Timothy 3 again, I, I love the progression of verse 14. If you, if you notice, he, he says to Timothy in verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. What was Paul's desire for Timothy? Well, if you look at those three phrases, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, they're not chronological in that verse, he, he, but there, there is a chronological sense to them. The first thing that had happened with Timothy is that he had learned something. He says, continue in what you have learned. And so our, our first and initial goal for our kids is that they would learn the scripture and the gospel. That, that they have the head knowledge, that they can answer questions about it, that they're exposed to that truth. That is part of what we want for our kids is that they learn those things. But it's not just that they learn them. He says, you have learned these things and you have become convinced of them. We, we want our kids to be convinced of the truth of the things that they are learning. You know, your kids might could pass a, a multiple choice test about truth about God, you know, match this attribute of God to what it is or how it shows up as they grow. Or maybe they can say all the books of the Bible and, and they can uh, articulate truth. But the, the, the standard that God gives is, is higher than just head knowledge. It's that they are convinced of it, that they are placing their, their confidence in it. That's our goal for our kids. It's not just pass a test. It's stake your life on it. And not just for a season. He also says that he would continue in those things. Isn't that what you want for your kids? When you think about the Bible and the truth of God's word, you want them to learn it, to understand it. You want them to be convinced of the truth of it and to have confidence and, and the convictions that flow from that. And then you hope they continue in that, that it's not just a phase when they're in your house or, or you know, when they're in, in youth group, but that for the rest of their life, they continue to cling to those things. This is really what God calls all of us to, that, that he calls a disciple to, to observe and obey God's word for a lifetime. 
in those ways. Text that, uh, that I think about with kids in this regards is in Matthew 13, 44. It's the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a simple parable, not one that we think often about, but it's the, the parable of a, a guy who's out in a field and he stumbles across a treasure. Maybe there's a little bit sticking up and he stubs his toe on it and so he figures out what it is and he recognizes the value of this treasure and, and he buries it again and with joy, his response is, I'm gonna go sell everything I have so that I can buy that field so that I get that treasure as well. And it's a picture of, of the response of one who is embracing Christ that, that with joy we give all that we have as we heard in the sermon this morning and, and embrace Christ and, and delight in him. Well, if you think of that in, in relation to your kids, you know the, the goal with your kids is not just that they know what treasure is or even that they know that, hey, there's some treasure buried over in that field. The goal is that they respond and sell all that they have and say, this is worth it. This is worth everything. This is what I want. We want them to love and treasure Christ and to respond to him. John Piper put it this way. He says, what we want from the next generation is not just heads full of right facts about the works of God. We want heads full of right facts and hearts that burn with the fire of love for the God of those facts, hearts that will sell everything to follow Jesus into the hardest places of the world. We, we do want heads full of facts, but not just that. We want those things to ignite a love and a passion and a desire to follow and obey, even to sacrifice for Christ in, in significant ways. You know, if that's what we want, that affects how we instruct and the, the, the manner in which we instruct. I want you to think back in, uh, to the time you were in high school and uh, what was the worst teacher you had? Picture that worst teacher, not, not like mad at them, but you know, think about whatever subject the worst teacher who taught you uh, taught. Maybe they were the worst teacher because they just couldn't control the class. Maybe they were just terribly boring and they communicated no passion at all about that subject. What did you think about that subject that that terrible teacher taught you? For me, it was mostly history. The history teachers tended to be sports coaches. It doesn't always happen that way. And they preferred to be coaching as opposed to teaching. And so it was like, we're gonna get through this so that I can get to practice after school. And so I did not grow up with a love of history because I never had a history teacher who was really passionate about it. I, I passed tests on it. I remembered content for brief periods of time to get the grades that I desired uh, in those classes, but there was not the communication of, of joy and zeal for this in that way. That, that's how it is with, with our kids. You know, if, if they are, are getting from us just kind of, we have to do this, that's the response that they'll have. They'll get head knowledge, but no passion and, and zeal. It's why parenting is, it requires offensive parenting, putting Christ on display, valuing and treasuring Christ. You know, I, I see this with my girls in that they like basketball. My older three play basketball right now and, and my younger two wish they could play basketball on teams right now, but there's five of them and so uh, we can't all be on basketball teams at the same time or we'll go crazy. 
Um, and, uh, and part of why my girls like basketball is because my wife and I enjoy basketball. My Christie's side of the family grew up Arizona Wildcats fans, and they loved watching college basketball and doing stuff like that. I enjoyed playing basketball, playing the men's league. And uh, so my girls have, have grown up seeing that my parents enjoy basketball, and, and they have gotten to do that and been around others who enjoy basketball. And so they have learned to enjoy basketball. You know, if, if they never saw me play, if they never saw us watch basketball, but we told them basketball is the greatest sport ever, but we never did it, we never watched it, we never did anything with it, you think they would be convinced? No. But because it's been woven through life in various ways, that's been contagious for them. Again, that doesn't mean that our kids will automatically pick up what we're passionate about, but it does mean instruction has to, to be focused on the larger goal of not just the transmission of facts. Yeah, and because of that, a, a third principle that's related is, is that we have to recognize that our example is instructing our children. Notice what Paul says again in verse 14. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. And what's he say at the end of that verse? He says, knowing from whom you have learned them. It's interesting. You know, we, we tend to think of uh, just the fact that these things are true, and so we should believe them, and that is true. But he says you continue in this, not simply because it's true, <laughs> Don't just do it because it's right, but continue knowing from whom you had learned it. Now, back in chapter one, he had described how uh, his, his mother and grandmother had been a part of, of spiritually teaching and instructing him. I think that's primarily probably who he's referring to. Obviously, Paul had had a role in that as well. And so he says, continue knowing the people who you learned this from not just knowing who they were, not just thinking back who taught me these things, but knowing, I think he's primarily focused on, the character and the fact that they embodied this conviction and continuing in that you are to, uh, to, to be characterized by. You see, our example, who we are, matters when we are seeking to instruct and teach our kids. We talked about this the first week. You can't separate who we are from what we do as parents. What we, who we are matters. One, uh, one author, uh, uh, J.C. Ryle, quoted a, uh, Archbishop Tillotson who said this, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. Our example has to match our instruction for it to truly be impactful in those ways. I was uh, an education major in, in uh, undergrad and, and we talked some about hidden curriculum. It, it's what we're really teaching. You know, if we do a lesson on, uh, um, on Martin Luther King and, and on the civil rights movement and on equality, and yet in that class context, you only call on the white students and none of the uh, other ethnic students who are in that class, what are you really teaching? Well, you're not teaching racial equality and civil rights, so you are teaching that we treat people differently depending on what they, uh, what they look like. And so we have to be so careful that what we are saying with our mouth is reflected in the example that we are are giving to our kids. And so that means that first our, our life 
in general, speaks volumes to our kids. MacArthur, commenting on this passage, said, To successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and hold them as your own, it's necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. That's why Paul would write things like 1 Timothy 4.16, Play close attention to yourself and to your teaching. It's not just what we say, it's our example. Flip back to Deuteronomy 6. We'll, we'll look at this text again uh, later on this morning, but just, just look at the, the way he connects, God connects who we are and how we live with our instruction. Deuteronomy 6, he's going to get to Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. But if you look in verse 1, he says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord to keep all his statutes and commandments which I have commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you. And, and uh, it goes on in, in verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently. See, there was the expectation that one generation is doing these things, is obeying these things, is loving the Lord and, and meditating on his word and that's the generation that is teaching. It's not just the content, it's the example Another author, John Engel James, says, Parents, as you, wish to your, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of holy example. It's not enough to be gen, uh, generally pious. You shall be wholly pious. Not only real disciples, but eminent ones. He means not just outwardly this, but genuinely. Not only sincere, but consistent. Your standard of true religion should be very high. He says, to some parents, I would give this advice. Say less about religion to your children or else, else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. That's a, that's a powerful thought, isn't it? Talk less about religion and the gospel and, and Christ or else live like it, it matters and it makes a difference. Now, that isn't counsel to say, well, if you're not going to live this way, just don't worry about talking about it to your kids. No, we need to be talking to our kids about these things. We just need to be demonstrating the reality of them in our life. Again, does that mean we have to be perfect? No. Does it mean you wait until you're perfect and now finally I can talk to my kids about this? No. Part of it is you're demonstrating the, the desire to be obedient to Christ. You're demonstrating the right response when you fail. It's not perfection, but it's a genuine love for Christ and desire to honor him in those ways. Your, your life speaks volumes to your kids, how you interact with them, how you interact with others. Second reality is that your worship is contagious to your kids. And by this we mean both what we worship and how we worship. Look over at Exodus chapter 20. There's a phrase that God uses in the giving of the law that may have been, uh, been troubling to you in the past when he 
says in the second command, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Um, Verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them. And, And then he says this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and shall keep my commandments. No, he is, he's not saying that I'm going to punish the third and fourth generation for the sin of the person who committed it. It's not saying if you commit sin, you know, your whatever third generation, your grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids are going to be punished because of the sin that you did versus like, uh, like 2 Kings uh, 14.6 make that clear. But he's, he's rather saying that I won't let the future generations get away with idolatry even though they learned that from previous generations. He, he's saying if you practice idolatry, what's going to happen is your children are likely to practice idolatry and your grandchildren are likely to practice idolatry. And I'm not going to say to that third or fourth generation, well, it's no big deal because you're just doing what you learned from your parents. I'm going to continue to punish them because what they're doing is wrong as well. One uh, uh, commentator puts it this way, rather this theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing. After all, they merely learned it from their parents. Because what you worship, God says, typically will be passed along to your children so that they will worship as well. And if what you worship is idolatry and your kids end up having the same idols as you, God will not spare them from the punishment that they deserve just because they learned that from you. The the principle is that your kids learn who and how to worship from you. They learn what is truly valuable from you and, and my kids do from me. What do they think that we worship? What do they think is the most important thing to us? Is it our job or our possessions? Is it our comfort? Is it respect, our family? Or is it Christ? What we worship is, is contagious, but also really how you worship is contagious. The zeal with which you worship God is also contagious. Look at Psalm 145. If we, if we had more time, we could could work through this entire psalm. There's a, a great deal about God's character and our response to him. But um, one, I'll start in, in verse one. He says this, the psalmist says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. The psalmist is committing to praise God every day. All day, every day, I will be praising you because you are so great and and so unfathomable in in your greatness. And then verse four says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's the, the what we do as parents. One generation shall do what? shall praise your works to another. Wait a minute. That's, that's like a, 
sounds like a musical or something. Like, so does that mean our home is a, we live as a musical and we're always praising God to our kids and, and singing? Well, maybe, <laughs> not all the time. But it, but it does mean it's not just, what? Just not just the communication of facts and head knowledge. It's not just, hey, don't forget, God is holy and just and good. What do you sense from the psalmist here? You sense he's exalting God. God is so great, and he goes on the rest of the psalm and, and just is praising God. I'm meditating on all that you've done and who you are. Lord's gracious and, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great and loving kindness. He, he says, one generation is praising God to the next. You can't help but talk about him in a way that is praising him. You know, again, there's times where you talk to your kids about stuff that you couldn't care less about. Maybe they bring home homework from school and it's something that you really can't tell them why they need to know this. It's like, they, and, and you're hoping, just don't ask me where you ever have used this. And, and you know I learned it in fourth grade and you have to learn it in fourth grade and you'll get to help your kids with it in fourth grade and that's the only reason anybody ever needs to know this. And you talk about it with them and it's like, that's, that's what comes across Yes, but when we talk about the scriptures and God, again, is there, does that mean it's got to be this emotional high every time? No, but it, it means we are to be exalting him and they are to see us praising him. Our kids need to know that God is worthy of our worship and to see us worshiping and exalting him. I think that's, that's one reason why it's, important for parents and kids to worship together you know there are things that we do in in a kid's Sunday school class that are uniquely tailored to their age and that's great but if kids never get to be with their parents in worshiping the Lord they are missing out on a key part of the instruction that that parents should want to give their kids and and are called to give their kids in Deuteronomy 11 all Israel was coming together before the Lord. And, and in verse 12, the, the instructions were given to assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, the alien who is in your town, that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of the law. You know, it's good for your kids to see a children's Sunday school teacher talking about the Bible or singing, but it's good for them to see you as the parent sitting under the word of God and eagerly learning and and singing praises to the Lord as well. John Piper in a little booklet called The Family Together in God's Presence, put it this way, I think it's in your handout there. Parents have the responsibility to teach their children by their own example, the meaning and value of worship. This means therefore parents should want their children with them in worship so the children can watch the spirit and form of their parents' worship. They should see how mom and dad sing praise to God with joy in their faces, how they listen hungrily to his word, they should catch the spirit of their parents meeting the living God. Something seems wrong when parents want to take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and other adults to form their attitude and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model for their children the tremendous value they put on reverence in the presence of Almighty God. Now that doesn't mean that when you have a six-month-old, you need to take them to the worship service with you. There's a, a wonderful blessing called nursery and nursery <laughs> workers, and they're eager to serve so that you can be focused on learning and growing. But at some point as your kids age, it, it becomes appropriate for you, and, and there's not a specific age, but at some point where your heart is, no, I want them next to me. I want them worshiping, seeing me worship and, and learning alongside me 
um, in, in that way. Your worship is contagious to your kids. Now again, that means we've got to be a good example, backing up the, the truth of what we are, are, um, are telling our kids. If we're telling them God is worthy of worship, He's great and glorious, and they come to the service and they sit by us and they see us sitting there like this during the singing, what are they learning from us? Not that God is great and glorious, are they? No, our, our example matters, and we've got to cultivate the right heart so that our kids can be engaged in that as well. Uh, a final ex- uh, aspect of our example that, uh, that matters is our marriage. Our marriage preaches the gospel to our kids. And we're not going to spend a, a ton of time on this because it's a parenting class, not a marriage class, but marriage matters, and, and marriage matters to God, and, and it does so for a variety of ways, but one of the reasons why marriage matters so much to God in Ephesians 5 is because it's a picture of the gospel. It's a portrait of the reality of Christ sacrificially giving himself for his bride, for the church, and, and of his bride, the church, responding in, in submission with joy to Christ. God designed marriage to be a great illustration of the gospel. In fact, he, he intended that in marriage. It wasn't like God said, you know, you know, we need to have marriage, so we'll have marriage. And then later on down the road, he said, you know what? Marriage is really a picture of the gospel. That's pretty cool how that worked out. No, God said, this is, this is what I'm about. I'm about the gospel and redemption, and, and I'm going to design and weave this into the fabric of what I have intended. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 highlights that mystery of of Christ and the church that marriage is a picture of. And so how we interact with our spouse teaches our kids about the gospel. I put a long quote there that we'll just briefly read together. Uh, It says it better than I could. It says this, the gospel is the good news that the groom loves his bride. He loved her so much that he humbled himself, descended an infinite distance, became man and suffered poverty and abuse for 33 years. Then in the greatest display of love in history, he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a cross in his bride's place. The Son of God did all this to serve his bride, to make peace where enmity reigned. What motivated him? Love that surpasses knowledge. He longed to unite himself in irrevocable love to an unworthy bride. But the gospel is not just about the groom's love. It also provokes a response from his bride. When understood from the heart, it motivates her to humble herself, love the groom with all her heart, respect him, serve him with joyful abandon. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. And here's Paul's point. Christian marriage preaches this union. It makes it either attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves the church. You can trust the groom. He is infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittles her, loves his children more than her, takes her for granted, his marriage says Christ's love is not all that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a fickle despot? Wives also preach when mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, recognizing that he is the head of, as Christ is head of the church, and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ. It makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. 
Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. The Son of God is infinitely good. You can trust him. But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, resists his authority, refuses to respect him, and declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say the Son of God cannot be trusted. He he promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he'll exalt me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? And in most cases, her children will internalize what she does, not what she says. That's a it's a sobering reality. Again, it doesn't mean that our marriages have to be perfect, but it does mean our marriages are communicating truth to our children. And, and they are a key part of the instruction that God has, has allowed us to have, modeling Christ's love and, and the, the joyful submission that comes to a Savior like Him. So recognize your example is, is instructing your kids. If your goal is that they're convinced of truth and continue in truth, Part of what is critical is the model that we set, the example that we give. And a, a fourth principle we see back in 2 Timothy is that we must prioritize Scripture in instructing your children. If you flip back to 2 Timothy 3, Paul said to Timothy, you, however, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, literally from infancy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. Why should we prioritize Scripture in the instruction of our children? It's because Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. He says, you knew this from childhood, and the sacred writings are that which is able to grant you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith. Does that mean that it's just kind of this magic pill kind of a thing where if you just expose your kid to some scripture, sprinkle that in, you know, bam, they'll have wisdom and be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. It, but it, it means that the scriptures are the power of God for salvation. As Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Or Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And it's not just random verses, but it's the, the entire biblical pattern and picture, a biblical worldview, understanding God as creator and man's sinfulness. The, the sacred writings that Paul had, was referring to here were the Old Testament. Timothy had known the Old Testament, the foundation of who God is and, and his perfect character and, and his, uh, his standard and, and his grace as the Redeemer. The Scriptures give wisdom for salvation. And, and it goes on, those familiar verses, that the Scripture is, is profitable for all that we want to teach our kids. He says Scripture is inspired by God and, and profitable for teaching for what we should know and, and how we should think. It's profitable for reproof, that idea that we've talked about the last couple of weeks when our kids get off and we have to rebuke them to, to get their attention that this is the, you're off the path for correction, for drawing them back to where they need to be in their thinking and attitude and how to live. And, 
and profitable for training and righteousness. That idea, again, that we've thought about and talked about is of, of reinforcing through the, the, the circumstances of life how it is that we are to live. The scripture is what is profitable for those things. It's what is useful for all of those things. And so if that's the case, Scripture must be the primary content of our instruction. We, we've got to be communicating the truth of Scripture to our children. Again, that, that doesn't just mean always dropping a Bible verse with our kids, although there is a great need to saturate our speech with what the Scriptures say, but it's it's the larger story of Scripture, the, the truth of God as creator and man's sin and, and God's plan of redemption. It's the theology that Scripture teaches us about God and his world and man and, and all of the different details. It's about the, the, the wise application of Scripture to our life, how life intersects with the truth that God's word presents. You know, our kids can understand more than we think a lot of times from an earlier age than we think and and we can be so prone to think well we'll talk about these things later as they grow but we need to be saturating them with the truth of of God's word the goal again is not just bible knowledge it's not that your kid can can pass a, a bible test by the time they're in in third or fourth grade but it's it's life transformation that comes from understanding the scripture again there's a number of resources up here that are useful to that end one of the the sections of the the resource list i gave you guys is kids bibles and ways to begin exposing your kids to the truth now um, they, they aren't necessarily bibles in the sense that they are an accurate representation of the the original language i was talking to daniel about this earlier and um, you know they're more the story of the bible put in language that kids can understand so it's not that uh, you can find every verse in, in those, uh, but a number of different ones that help from an early age to begin to lay aside that, lay out that story. The big picture story Bible is uh, more early kids, the Jesus storybook Bible, um, and then some of the others as they get a little bit older from there. One that we really enjoyed was 365 Bible Stories for Young Hearts, which I believe is maybe not in print anymore, though I think you can still, uh, can still get it. It goes through more in depth. The different stories of the Bible has a lot of, uh, of um, parts of the Bible that a lot of kids' storybook Bibles don't. So Judges, Leviticus, different parts like that. So it's more, more thorough in those ways. Those can be great tools to be instructing your kids and getting in the habit of, of reading the Bible with them and, and talking about those kinds of things. You know, we need to be making Scripture the primary content of our instruction. And, and if that's going to be the case... What has to be true of us? You know, well, if you're going to talk about it with your kids, it's got to be filling our hearts and our minds. We'll talk a little more about some practical ways to do that with our kids. But if, if that's going to be true, Scripture must fill our minds and hearts as parents. That's why Deuteronomy 6 started with, These words shall be on your heart. You know, we, we can't teach our kids what we're not thinking about and what's not on our heart and mind. That means as parents, we've got to be spending time reading the scripture so that we have truth, not just for the sake of talking to our kids about it, so that we can understand and meditate and be changed, and then out of the overflow of that, be sharing with our kids. I mean, sometimes we've got to 
Uh, we need to be studying Scripture. Sometimes that's in the context of Bible studies at church. Sometimes it's, man, my kid is struggling with this, or I'm struggling with this, so I need to dig in deep on this so that I can unpack this with, uh, in my own mind and, and then with my kids. Do you always have your Bible with you? Well, you probably have a cell phone, so you, you can pull it up. But if you're driving in the car having a conversation with your kid, that's discouraged. So it's important that we are memorizing Scripture. You know, so often we want to tell our kids biblical ideas, and we maybe can kind of summarize it. Like the Bible says, love your brother. <laughs> Stop hitting your brother, right? The, the Bible says that. Well, sort of. Where? Well, it says that. Just trust me. You know, we, we need to be filling our minds so that we can, can accurately handle Scripture with our children. That may mean that you are memorizing verses that you know I need in my toolbox so that I can interact with my kids all the time about this because this is an ongoing battle. Maybe it's for you so that you are dwelling on the truth that you can, can consider, but it's not just memorizing it, it's meditating on it so that we will be doing what the scriptures say, that it will be changing our hearts and our minds and bearing fruit in how we live. If we want to have our kids know the sacred writings from childhood, it starts with it being on our hearts and our minds. For some of you, that may be the biggest takeaway from this entire class, is that you've got to be growing personally or you'll never be the parent that God calls you to be. And and reshaping your priorities to, to shape your own biblical input into your own mind so that you can be faithful in, in living that out and then instructing your kids. And we'll talk more practically here in just a, a minute. But a, a fifth principle that we see here in 2 Timothy is that we are to emphasize the gospel in instructing your children. What did, what did Timothy, or Paul tell Timothy, about the sacred writings? Well, he said they are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy came to understood the truth of the gospel through the consistent exposure to the scriptures and ultimately to the truth about Christ. Our kids need to understand the truth of the gospel. They need to understand the reality that God is the creator and he's holy and man is sinful and Christ came and as the God-man lived the perfect life we can't live and died the death that we deserve so that if we respond in, in repentance and faith, we can be forgiven. They, they need to understand the, the way that plays out in, in the story of the Bible, that it's not just isolated theological truths, but that God made a world that was good and yet sin entered and, and it corrupted everything that, uh, that was good that God had made and yet God offered a plan of redemption through his son and, and there will come a day when all will be made new. They need to understand the truth of the gospel. That saturates our, our communication with our kids. Now you may think, well, gee, where does that ever come up with kids? Well, think about man's sinfulness. How often you, you see sin demonstrated in your home? Eh, pretty often. You know, so we can either just say, hey, we're going to just focus on how we're all, uh, you know, need to change and be better so our house can be peaceful, or we're going to fit that into the context of the gospel. Guess what? Our house is, is a picture of man's sinfulness so often. 
you know, when you get the flu, it's a picture of the fallen world that we live in. We, we don't tend to think in those categories. We just try to survive the day. But all of life intersects with these realities of the gospel and gives us opportunities to share the truth of that with our, our kids. You know, creation is one of the, the greatest ways with young kids do this because they're just enthralled with the world that God has made. You know, they come in and, and bring you some little worm or something and your inclination is, get that out of here, you know, or whatever. Uh, but it, it's a chance to see that God is, God is the creator and he's made all things and, and to, to launch from that into the truth of, of the gospel. They need to know the truth of the gospel, but also the, the need for the gospel, their need for the gospel. That that is what they are desperate for. That that's the only hope for them. And, and if that's true, if they need the gospel and it's the, their desperate need, it's also true that that is everyone's desperate need. But if they never see us care about the gospel going beyond our family, again, we're not teaching them the full truth about the gospel. We're teaching them that, yeah, it's important kind of at some points for you, but it's not the most um, the, the desperate need for the world. It's not the best news ever because we never tell anybody else about it. Our kids need to see that and, and be reminded of, of that. And then a, a final principle that I think is actually six, not five, is to be intentional in instructing your children. For this, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. We've spent some time here already. We've, it, it reminds us of the importance of God's word being on our own heart, our own example. As verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he says this, verse 7 to 9, he says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates he, he really gives two key categories of instruction here he, he says in verse 7 you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and then you shall talk of them when you are doing all these different things. The, the idea of, of teaching them diligently is of, of repetition, like carving something into a stone. And, and the picture is uh, of two things. The first being formal, or what we could think of as more formal instruction. Formal instruction, being, um, being careful to, in a somewhat systematic way, expose our kids to the truth in a structured, planned format. This was the expectation in ancient Israel that they would be systematically teaching their kids. You know, some of this was woven into the national calendar. You know, they had all these feasts, things like Passover and, and others. Why did they do all of those things? Well, part of it was that the adults would remember what God had done, but a big part of it, if you go back and read his instructions about things like Passover, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this so that your kids will ask, why are we doing this? <laughs> so that's the whole point. We do some of this stuff, 
And the idea is that when you get to this point, the kids will say, why are we doing this? Why are there bitter herbs? And you get to tell them, here's why, here's what God has done. They were regularly built into the calendar. Every year we do this. And it was intentional so that they would learn and, and that they would be exposed to those things. So what does it look like for us to formally instruct our kids? Well, uh, that, that means having times of, of family worship or Bible reading or Bible study. Again, we, we can make this out to be some big, massive, overwhelming thing like, wow, do we have to do like a church service with our family like we do at church? Well, no, we do a church service at church and you bring your family. But at home, to be having consistent times where we are, are uh, reading the Bible together, where we are talking about those things, again, it can look different. Not every family is going to look the same. Some that may be in the morning before they go to school. Some it may be at a regular time in the evening. Some it may not be quite as consistent because of the schedule of what life looks like. Uh, but to intentionally say we want to be doing these things together. We want to be uh, having those things. Again, I mentioned some of the kids' Bibles that can be very helpful, like when your kids are young, and that may look like, you know, before they go to bed, spending some time reading those things. There's some family devotion guides that are, uh, are helpful as well. One uh, that goes along with our, um, our, our kids' curriculum is uh, this one. Um, I don't know that I have any sitting out downstairs right now, but I have some. If you are interested in one, you can let me know, and uh, I'll bring some to class next week. Um, but this is a, a, a basically a five-day guide, so you can either, based off of the lesson that's coming up or the lesson that they've just heard in Sunday school, spend some time each day talking with them about related things, gives you all the things to read and, and ask um, related to those. So those can be helpful tools. So you're not on your own doing this, but you have something that is equipping you. Um, the long story short is another book over there that's, that's similar uh, in structure and, and just works through some of the themes of, of the Bible. Um, that's in, intentionality to say, hey, we want to do this on a regular basis with our kids. Um, catechism questions can be a, another formal way to do that. We're doing those in Sunday school uh, this year down on the uh, at the Welcome Center are some little yellow booklets I forgot to grab um, one to show you, but they have a weekly catechism question in Sunday school. Uh, there's some music CDs that go with that, so you can pop the CD in your van and, uh, and listen to that while you're driving around, and everybody will learn the catechism questions together, and, uh, and it'll be great. Um, they, uh, but catechisms are just a, a question and answer format for learning biblical truth. So... Uh, they, they give examples. This, this week's question, uh, who are our first parents? Adam and Eve are our first parents. Doesn't mean they're actually their parents. You might have to explain that detail to them. But where do we all come from? We came from Adam and Eve. And then the next questions are about Adam and Eve and, and how they fell into sin and the impact that's had on us. So just a way to expose kids and to help kids learn key uh, biblical truth that can be uh, very helpful in those ways. Um, Scripture memory is another, uh, for, again, uh, by formal, we mean just thinking through intentionally what we're doing. Some, again, you're not on your own on those things. You don't have to uh, come up with all these ideas by yourself. You know, we make use of, of Awana, our Sunday night program, which has tons of scripture memory in it. And so our kids are involved with that and memorizing those things uh, in a way that is very helpful and uh, in shaping their thinking on those, uh, those things. Um, good music can be another way to formally instruct your kids. Not 
Uh, not again, sitting down and saying, okay, every day for five minutes, we're going to listen to a good kid song. No, but filling your life and your world with good music. I put a number of different CDs on that resource list. Um, Sovereign Grace Music has a number of good kids songs. Um, Seeds Family Worship has another. I, I think those are all on uh, Amazon Prime. If you have one of those little echo devices or something and you say, play Seeds Family Worship, it will just play Seeds Family Worship for you. Um, but they're all scripture, song, scripture verses that are put to music. Um, just exposing your kids to truth in, in those ways. Um, good books and movies as well can be helpful. There's some over there, some uh, different biographical movies for kids. Uh, What's in the Bible is another helpful series that goes through each book of the Bible and uh, in, in a creative way, more for probably younger elementary kids, um, that uh, older preschool, younger elementary uh, that, that really lays a foundation of truth about what's going on in the books of the Bible as well. Um, just being intentional with the resources that, uh, that are available. We live at a, at a good time in the sense that there is a lot of good stuff out there. Now, there's also tons of junk. And so navigating through that, there's just a lot of stuff out there. But, um, but there's, there's a lot of good things that can be helpful um, for us to make use of. Um, so formal instruction is important. Yes. Yeah, I think they have like all the um, all the what's in the Bible DVDs and different things. So, yep, a lot of those are available. Um, so those can be uh, very helpful means of of instruction. And and not only are we to do it formally, um, and again that doesn't just mean in a rigid classroom setting, but intentionally using resources throughout our our day and week to to be teaching our kids, but we also need to be doing it through informal interaction. If you look back at Deuteronomy 6, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And in our day and age, I would say that means, you know, spending time reading the Bible with our kids, spending time listening to good music, uh, watching good DVDs instead of just all the the junk that's out there, reading other good books, memorizing scripture. But then he says, and you shall talk of them when? When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Again, if we were to translate that into modern, you know, you shall sit of them, you shall uh, talk of them when you sit around the the island in the kitchen, or when you're sitting on the couch, when you're driving to the grocery store, when you're walking around the grocery store, you shall be talking of these things with them. Informal interaction. Why is that so important? Okay, to saturate them with the scripture? Yeah, living out what you're telling them so that they recognize this is not just classroom. Again, do your kids ever, uh, those that have older kids, or maybe you, you ever come home from school and you've sat in a formal class on something and your chief question is, why does this matter? Maybe your kids aren't there yet. Um, you know, and usually my kids are asking that as in, do I really have to do this? And we're like, yes, you still do. Um, but the, the application of formal truth to life is not always clear. And the, the impact of that is not always clear. And so interacting in real life is huge for communicating the value of truth and helping to understand the truth that we've learned about in a more formal way. One author put it this way, he says, Moses understood that God's truth cannot effectively be taught if it is confined to the home or classroom. 
How will our children believe that the Bible is about all of life if we only talk about it during the Bible lesson? To put it another way, discipleship is most effectively accomplished when the practice is integrated into the rhythm of everyday life. A consistent time of family worship, for example, is a great discipleship practice, but it is no substitute for a lifestyle of discipleship that encompasses the breakfast table, the car, bedtime errands, chores. There's not a single moment in life that cannot be used as an opportunity for instruction. We, we are to be informally interacting with our kids all the time about the truth of God and his word. What, is that, what does that look like? Well, I, I think two simple principles that are hard to do. One is to start by listening to your kids. You know, your kids talk about stuff. They ask questions about things. And it's really easy to kind of get in the habit of just kind of tuning them out because when they're young, you know, they talk about stuff that you're like, I don't really even know what world you're living in or what you're talking about. Um, and, you know, and, and so our kids will talk and, and engage. And if we listen to our kids, there are lots of opportunities to launch off of what they have already said and to engage with them about the truth of God's word. Um, also, asking good questions of our kids. You know, when they, they see... Uh, something outside the car window, you know, that is going on. And maybe it's a, a thunderstorm or something, and, or, or just a, a cool animal. There's a place we drive, or used to drive going to school, that there was like llamas and zebras on the side of the road, and the kids were always like, oh, look at those. You know, it's a great chance just to engage. Who made those? Who designed those? What, what, is, uh, what's, uh, what is God telling us about himself through these things? So listening to our kids, asking good questions, just being intentional to engage and talk with our kids. I think this is much harder for us as dads, most of us. Um, I saw a, a cartoon, um, I, I don't think I put it on the PowerPoint, but um, it was a Baby Blues cartoon. It said, ask a mom, where do birds go in the winter? And the mom's response is, that's a great question. Let's go to the library and find a book on that. You ask a dad, where do birds go in the winter? And the response is, that way. <laughs> You know, that's just kind of how we tend to be wired is dads are pretty quick in, you know, responding with kind of matter of factness and, and moms are more likely to engage. Uh, that's okay, but it means we as dads have to work harder to be more in tune with opportunities that God gives us. We need to be intentional to listen to our kids, to ask good questions as we're going about the flow of life and, and also just creating time to talk, especially if you have multiple kids. You know, if you, we've got five girls, and so um, it's, it's nice when we can intentionally have some time with one of them by themselves. And that may not be anything fancy. It may just be going to the grocery store with one instead of taking multiple ones or, or just running simple errands. And instead of doing it by myself, taking a kid to go, one of my children to go with me. We can share about our life and what's going on with them and as a way to engage them as well. So formal uh, instruction, informal interaction. Another way to be intentional is through purposeful discipline. And we've already talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks, but just to remind you that discipline and instruction are not two totally separate things. They interact and intersect with one another. And so we want to be careful to address the heart in our discipline. That's a part of effective and intentional instruction. Not just about behavior change as we've seen, not just about getting them to stop doing something that is bothersome to us or to a, a sibling, 
but taking the time to address the heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Or Matthew 15.18, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. So when we talk with our kids about the behavior that's coming out, we need to take time to interact on a heart level. Not just telling them, don't ever hit your brother again, but reminding them even as we heard this morning that God's standard is loving your brother as you love yourself. You know, it's not don't glare at me like that, but it's that God calls us to have a heart that is, is respectful and honors the authority that he's placed over us. You know, we need to be thinking about the heart attitudes that are, are underlying the common behaviors that we want to see changed in our kids means as we as we discipline them we want to address their heart we also need to be seeking to appeal to their conscience in our instruction I love the example of Nathan confronting David if you remember in 2nd Samuel after David had sinned and God sent Nathan to confront him about his adultery and murder and Nathan didn't just walk up to David and say you are a wicked adulterer and murderer did he he came up and he did what told him a story. It's like, hey, there were two guys. <laughs> rich guy, lots of sheep. Poor guy, only one. And the rich guy had guests coming. He took the poor man's sheep. And David got mad because he, he could see in that story the, the wrong of, of what had been done. And he said, oh, by the way, you are that man. And David's like, whoa, you got me. You know, so often with our kids, we rush to just point out the clear area in which they are wrong. And again, that doesn't mean that there's not a place for that and a time for that. Sometimes we do need immediate intervention. Um, but oftentimes we, we, we need to work harder to help our kids see the issue themselves. Some of that can be through the use of, of questions and, and stories. One, uh, uh, one author said this, Lupriolo said, when using the scripture for the purpose of conviction, take aim at the conscience of your children. You must try to disturb any complacency and indifference to sin and awaken him to the fact that of what he or she has done, something that is displeasing to God. And one of the most effective ways of awakening the conscience of others to their sin is by asking them questions. You know, if I see one of my girls talk uh, disrespectfully to my wife, I can be so quick to say, I can't believe you talked to your, that way to your mother. How disrespectful. And it's like, oh, I didn't really hear what you said. Uh, but, or I, I can say, what was, come here, what, what was wrong with how you just spoke to your mother? You know, I may still have to tell them because <laughs> they may say, I don't know, uh, or whatever. Um, nothing. Well, no, but, but trying to draw them in to think about themselves, to let their own conscience convict them about what it is that they've done that is wrong. Asking questions, using stories and analogies. You know, if you're talking to, uh, um, to uh, a son about uh, issues of, of lust and, and fornication, premarital sex, and, and using an analogy of something like, uh, you know, drinking water. You know, if, if you're thirsty, you've been out mowing the grass, and you come inside, and, uh, you know, you want to you drink a water, uh, which would you rather do? Would you rather go to the fridge and get a nice glass of cold filtered water from the fridge? Or would you rather just go stick your head in the toilet? <laughs> well, they're both water, right? You know, 
Uh, on the one hand, you could say, what's the difference? It's just water, but you know the difference. Well, guess what? God has designed physical intimacy to be this beautiful, refreshing blessing, but you can only get that in the context of marriage. It only comes from the fridge. There is water available elsewhere, but you don't want that. <laughs> it is not God's good gift. It is, it is forbidden from you. Oh, you know, you, so the, the, the way in which we teach and the way in which we interact is, is helpful for uh, our kids connecting the truth to their own heart and seeing that in their, um, in their own life. You know, so using stories, illustrations, questions, not to replace the scriptures, but to help the scriptures take root in, uh, in their hearts. We need to appeal to their, their own conscience. We don't just want them to live based on what we tell them is right or wrong, we want them to feel the weight of that as well. And then always directing them to the gospel. We looked at this quote the last week or two. It's from Ted Tripp. He says, the central focus of child rearing is to bring children to a sober assessment of themselves as sinners. The focal point of your discipline and correction must be your children seeing their utter inability to do things that God requires unless they know the help and strength of God. Discipline leads to the cross of Christ where sinful people are forgiven. You know, perhaps the best opportunity for preaching the gospel to our kids is in that context of discipline when they have failed and fallen short of God's standard. And in that moment, we can either just chastise them and tell them you better change or else or we can draw them to the hope of the gospel. When they are struggling and uh, repeatedly failing in the same way, obeying you, loving a, a sibling, responding to your authority well, those are the opportunities to, to direct their hearts to the gospel. You know, I, I, it's not just, I'm just gonna keep disciplining you until you learn to obey. I can't believe you're still struggling with this. I don't know if you'll ever learn. Not, I don't know what, to do with you. I've tried everything and I just can't get you to change. We've all been tempted to say that or said that on a lot of occasions. But it's, I know it's hard to obey. You know, it's hard for, for daddy to obey too. That's why Jesus came. The only person who never did what you're struggling with and what I struggle with is Jesus. And God offers to us his perfect life of righteousness. And he took the penalty that your sin and mine deserve, not the spanking you're about to get, but the eternal punishment that you deserve. He took that. Uh, those are the, those, those uh, precious opportunities to direct our kids to the gospel time and time and time again through purposeful discipline where we're addressing their heart and appealing to their conscience and directing to the gospel. What we're going to do the next couple of weeks is take this foundation that we have learned of, of our heart in, in parenting and how God is working in us and, and of disciplining and training our kids and instructing our kids. And we're gonna apply it to some uh, particular issues that are challenging in, in our day and age. Every season has unique issues that are, are particularly challenging for, for parents. And so um, we're gonna start next week looking at issues of things like gender and uh, and technology and some others from there. Um, and so, uh, again, some of that we will get um, beyond what Scripture specifically says to hear some principles that can be helpful for us as parents to think through and some practical wisdom that 
that can, uh, can play out in that. But drawing that from what does the scriptures call us to as, as parents and what's the, the way that we need to be so careful as we, uh, as we live in today's world with kids and uh, the things that they're going to face. So um, look forward to our time uh, together. Two more weeks of class before our conference. Uh, I mentioned that marriage is critical for our parenting and our example. And uh, we do have the marriage conference coming up um, February 16th through 18th. Hope you'll plan to be here that weekend. Starts Friday night, uh, Friday evening, and then Saturday morning, and then Sunday morning. Um, and we'll have a great, uh, great time with the kids as well, kids program on a biblical view of gender and marriage as well. So hope you'll plan to be a part of that weekend. Um, well, let me pray and uh, feel free to come look at some of the resources. And uh, if you have questions, we'll hang out and interact here for a while. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege of instructing our kids. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to the opportunities that we have this week, that we would take uh, just the, the, the informal opportunities as we go through life with our kids to speak of you and to interact and engage well with them, that we would take the, the times when we are disciplining this week to direct our kids to your word, to your standard, that we would really effectively appeal to their own conscience and direct them to the gospel. And, and Lord, we pray that we would um, just be faithful in the formal instruction, that we would use the different tools and resources that you've given us, that we would be faithful and to intentionally talk with our kids regularly about the scriptures. Uh, Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you for the help that we get from uh, the ministries of our church, our children's Sunday school program and Awana and and others, Lord, we are grateful for those things, but we don't want to neglect the role that you have given us of instructing our own children. So, Lord, make us faithful. Help us to, uh, to continue to grow in that in the, the weeks and months and years ahead. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.